to the Line Break Podcast. I'm your friend, Chris Corlew, and with me as always is my friend and co-host, Bob Sakura. You've totally gotten your head. Now it's all about friendship at the opening. It's all about friendship now. It's all about <laughs> friendship, but we, we're friends here. Um, this week, we are talking about the relationship between horror and religion, and oh, what fun, we have a guest this week. He is the extremely talented musician behind the musical project B and the Nothingness, he is our own music producer. He is literally my son's godfather and my best friend since I was eight years old. He is Brendan Johnson. Brendan, welcome. Thank you, guys. Long-time listener, first-time caller. <laughs> you don't I have to take resist. your answer off air, uh, though. <laughs> uh, Brendan, you wouldn't necessarily identify as a poet, I know, but uh, you are an excellent songwriter. And um, while I'm on record that the two are very different, they're at least related. Um, so the topic at hand, um, religion and poetry, all three of us grew up with very religious backgrounds and in adulthood have developed relatively complicated relationships with religion. And I think poetry is a medium uniquely suited for addressing those complications in religion. Um, it's a quick caveat that we're going to be talking pretty exclusively about Christianity, but yeah, there's a um, there's a long tradition of religious poems. Um, there's Paradise Lost, where uh, John Milton uses Satan rebelling against God to uh, cope with his guilt of being involved in regicide. Um, there's William Blake's Songs of Innocence and Experience. Um, there's John Donne's weird ass fetish poem, Batter Me, Three Person God. Uh, go read it if you hadn't. It is weird. And of course, there is a multitude of hymns that at least follow rhyme and meter very closely that millions and millions of Christians sing once a week. Um, so there's stuff to be explored with the medium. Um, and so before Brennan and I get off on a uh, songwriting tangent and uh, Bible Belt tangent, uh, Bob, I wanted to ask you, Brennan and I grew up in the Bible Belt in Tennessee, and you grew up Catholic. And I feel like they're close, but they're a little different. Uh, one difference is that Catholicism is a little more imagistic with more ornate artwork and lavishly decorated churches and fancy costumes for priests. I know you've said you had trouble picturing things in your head, but do you feel like the imagery of Catholic church, Catholic school, various depictions of saints or demons or whatever, does that at all affect your writing or thinking? Well, I guess I, I want to start with uh, the like contextualization um, as opposed to uh, growing up in the Bible Belt, in my head there's some sort of, and it's not very well communicated or, you know, I think set in, I don't know how much reality, but I like to think of like somehow of, that there's some sort of difference of growing up as like a quote-unquote West Coast Catholic in the sense of I think the metaphor that works best for me is they make fun of uh, L.A. sports fans for like leaving games early because of traffic. And I feel like that's... That same attitude probably applies to religion. Um, I, I Not okay. to say that there weren't but, faithful people or people who was very serious to them, um, but when I moved out to the Midwest, um, I learned that there was uh, a brand of, in general, Christianity, but even in particular Catholicism, that was not familiar to what I experienced growing up. But with that said, uh, not a lot of the imagery, um, and again, I think that does, that's a very, like, person-specific thing where, yeah, I, I don't have um, a lot of image image kind of imagination going on in my brain on a day-to-day -day basis. 
I definitely dated someone for a while who had a, who was like not, wasn't raised Christian, wasn't raised Catholic, uh, who was like really into the imagery of the church. Um, mm-hmm. Kind of weirded me out. Um, <laughs> uh, but um, I think on one level, there is some like really, uh, just like I take it for granted um, the ways that I think about faith and, you know, I mean, the simplest example we talked about episodes ago, but how, how flippantly I will say something in a poem like about prayer. Um, sure. Yeah. I think I don't, I don't remember last time I like dropped God in, but, you know, I, I think about whether or not I'm going to capitalize the G on that God. Um, I think a oh, lot sure. about yeah. um, who's included when, when that kind of stuff comes up. And I think actually probably more importantly for me when you ask that question is how much um, I do think there's a very deep connection between my appreciation of language and the way that I encounter and think about poetry and the, the, the way in Catholic school growing up we memorized prayers and there was this type of language that was elevated and to be revered and you could just say it over and over again and the saying it was somehow bringing you closer to whatever, you know, to the spiritual, to God, to however you want to frame it. Um, And I think I learned a lot about poetry that way before I even had the vocabulary for poetry. Um, If that makes sense. That makes sense. And that, 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 that totally makes sense. That uh, harkens back to a little bit of what we were talking about last week with uh, magic and like spellcraft and things like Mm -hmm. that in poetry. Um, And uh, I do think that's a uniquely Catholic thing because we don't, I don't know of any Protestant church that makes you memorize prayers and say them over and over again. I guess they're like, there's a few, I mean, there's a few, we say the apostles creed every week. You say the Lord's prayer every week, but like, I guess it's different from like penance for sins, I suppose. Right. Well, it's interesting. I was just going to say how like fricking weird it is to be an eight year old kid and have this priest tell you, you're going to say five Hail Marys, five, our fathers, and like there was a part of the church yeah. where you like went to to do that. I don't know that all of that stuff um, that was just normal because that's what we all did. Like just like a little bit step away. I'm like, man, what? What? That is a weird thing for an eight year old. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> Brendan, what were you starting to say? Well, I was going to say it's interesting because um, even though Chris and I, the denominations we belong to aren't um aren't necessarily really like Catholicism. They are in some ways in the sense that they're uh, connectional churches, like, like kind of operated by a hierarchy that can cross, Mm. you know, country than to then the world, but also that like both of our churches kind of followed a set thing every week. And you, you know, like Chris said, you'd sing or you'd say the Lord's prayer and the apostles creed. I know we both sang similar benedictions and things like that. But whereas like a Baptist church, you could go and you're going to sing, you know, Lord, I lift your name on high. And then they're going to tell you, you know, that you're going to hell or that Obama's the (laughs) devil or whatever. Um, But I just uh, the format of the churches, um, they are our churches are somewhat similar. We should have had some Southern Baptist in here for a different perspective, I guess. Right. We're never having a Southern Baptist on this. (laughs) Unless it's Jimmy Carter, we're never having a Southern Baptist. My cold, dead body. Um, so yeah, you started to contextualize a little bit, Brennan, but yeah, like, um, uh, what about, what is it about religion that, uh, compels you in your writing? 
You know, I think that, um, I don't to not get too deep into it, but I'll say that um, it was a big part of my identity without it being forced on me. Like my parents took me to church and kind of expected me to go to church. But if there had come a point where I was, you know, 13 or 14 and was like, I'm not going to church anymore, like my brothers did, that would have been fine. So it's kind of like, I didn't get it imprinted on me. It was like a chosen part of my identity. Sure. And, um, and I think that coupled with like the deep sense of community that I get or got from church. Uh, and I still like in a way, um, but that sense of like, there's this group of people that care about you uh, that are bigger than whatever your, your, your family sphere is or your friend's sphere. And also I had best friends connected with, um, the church and also with religion in general, like you and, and Spencer and others, you know? Yeah, definitely. I, I mean, everything you just said applies to, to me as well. Um, it was definitely a, uh, chosen rather than forced, um, thing, especially like growing up with like, you know, youth group culture and things like that. Um, and yeah, you, you're bringing up, you know, the positive stuff, like the, the, the sense of community and the, uh, shared experiences, which part of, part of which you get from, you know, the, the songs we sing, the prayers we say and things like that, that is like, you know, it's a thing that can be abused by the church, but it's also a thing that can be really positive about the church. Uh, right. So. I mean, if you want me to go negative, I can, I was just saving it. <laughs> oh, we're getting to it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, that, uh, that, uh, that actually lends into my next question. Brennan, you are one of my favorite songs of all time, and I'm not just saying that because you're my best friend, but like this uh, really scratched an itch for me, a um, song called Job Song um, about uh, not Job Bluth, but Job from the Bible. Um, <laughs> a, few, uh, <laughs> a few little pull quotes, um, highlights. Um, Here with most everything gone, a righteous man who'd done no wrong, he's supposed to simply cower down and pray. Like all the shit today had gone his way. And Job thought about his life, missed his kids and missed his wife, pondered if his Lord was something light. True, it all belonged to God, but man, he took an awful lot. Can you talk a little bit about what it's like to sit down with a pen and notebook and just end God like that? <laughs> um, well, again, to get into the negative, um, I, I'll save talking about Job and I'll, I'll talk more broadly about why I, I think I come back to dealing with it. Um, I, it's, it's like having, it's like leaving a relationship and when you go to like break it up with them, you realize that they were never there at all, you know? Mm -hmm. And and so there's this mm -hmm. enormous sense of loss with no closure at all and no way to even kind of reckon the closure. And the way that you'd previously deal with it would be turning to God or something, or which is often what I did was like praying or, or, or you know, community or whatever else in that sort of sense. So I think when you leave faith, it just kind of leaves this hole that you have no idea how to really process. And so I, music was just a natural outlet, but to talk more about Job, um, Bob, how familiar are you with the story of Job? 
broad strokes, probably. Broad. Yeah, very broad. There's so much going on there that's really interesting. It's a beautiful book to read in a lot of ways. Um, But it's weird because as a believer, or at least for me, and I think maybe Chris would at least know what I'm talking about, you are drawn to Job because he's this man of immense faith. And, um, and, and in the face of the worst adversity you can possibly imagine, he still chooses that faith. And then there's that secondary layer of he doesn't question God, which is why the church really likes it. You know, like don't question God at all. Um, but then coming back at it, you know, after leaving faith, you can't look at it as anything but like really messed up because like God basically just made this bet like with the devil and was like, yeah, go to town on him. Like he'll still love me. Watch. It's, it's really, uh, I felt like Job really captured that sort of a feeling of like an abusive relationship with God in a lot of ways. Hmm. And so that's specifically why I maybe talked about Job. Um, yeah, I like that. Um, uh, funnily enough, uh, just last night or the night before Mallory and I were talking about how like, the happy ending is he gets like double of what he had before, but like, so he gets like, Oh yeah. He gets like 14 like, sons and right. And he, yeah, he had seven and he gets 14 or whatever the numbers are, but it's like more kids doesn't replace the kids you lost, you know, <laughs> like, um, it's not yeah. a happy ending. <laughs> like, <laughs> like I really like the son I have. I don't want a different one, you know? And to use it as some sort of like allegory for your life or a parable for your life, like if God takes your fields and your children and everything, it's not coming back. You know, like yeah. Job got lucky, but no one else gets that. You don't get your kids raised <laughs> from the dead and like stuff. That doesn't happen, you know. Right. Um Job. Oh, one one thing I was gonna say is um I like I, I wanted to write the song and then I realized that I kinda needed to like dive more into Job and understanding it. And um, so I was kind of reading a lot about it. And something that a lot of uh, Bible scholars talk about is how Job's wife isn't named for whatever reason. His three friends are named, but she's never named. And it's never said that like God kills his wife or anything. She just kind of like vanishes from the story. And um, I always liked that. And, and when I came to the verse that Chris was kind of talking about, Job thought about his life, missed his kids and missed his wife. I, I, I thought like, oh man, should I really be saying that like God killed his wife? Cause that's not really what the story says, but I still just something like, I, I don't know. It's something I'm drawn to about this idea of like, she didn't matter at all in the end, I guess, because it doesn't really say like, I don't, I, I, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it is like Job and his 14 kids and whatever are all happy now with his wife. But it, it's really like she's just swept so under the rug in a lot of ways. It's really something that would get revised in workshop. Like, yeah, hey, you just drop <laughs> this character. <laughs> you can't oh. just leave this character. How does he get his kids back if he doesn't have a wife? Where does his wife go? <laughs> There's this awesome part in the, in Job where God appears in a whirlwind and like Job's hanging out with his friends and God appears in this whirlwind and Job is still just like chill. He's just like, I'm not going to question God. Like God killed my kids because that's what God wanted. And his three friends are like, what the hell, man? And then God just like digs into the three friends and it's just like, you all are sinners and look at this dude. 
I don't know. It's really, it's such a power trip of a story, you know? Yeah, God unleashes on those dudes. God <laughs> is like, I think there's a part where he's like, where were you when I created the heavens and the earth, which is like pretty big flex from God. Yeah. Like, <laughs> <laughs> so that, that reminds me, uh, before we got on the air, I, I mentioned, and Chris knew this to Brendan, but I, I taught in a Catholic school for one year, a theology class, um, and it was just on the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament. And I was not as versed in the Bible as I got to be during that school year. Um, and that, to me, was one of the hardest parts, um, was just, I just kept finding myself in this position where students wanted me to, like, defend God. Like, why is God being such a dick here? Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, uh, I at least have the out from a religious like, or literary perspective. Good. Like, like we can um, let's talk about what it means. Not, don't worry about the individual gods being an asshole here. Um, but you know, also I didn't know how to defend God for doing whatever crappy thing he did. That's why they got to get the hooks in them when they're young. Because once you start getting too old and asking questions, it's really difficult. <laughs> It's it's incredibly difficult, and that's why that's why so much of of modern Christianity is approaching it from this abstract sense of just like, well, the uh, read the Old Testament with a grain of salt, and you're like, yeah, I hope so, because he was like turning people into salt, and like <laughs> he was like, you could ask him to kill your enemies, and he would. Yeah, uh, Bob, I think that's like that's your. Uh... That's your student's first entryway into um, you don't always have to like the character for the character to be a good character. Ooh, that's good. <laughs> <laughs> if only I had treated the class like a creative writing class, we could have really done something. Yeah, with you that. gotta you gotta read read the Bible from a literary perspective, and everything everything shifts. But yeah, our conversation about Job uh, really kind of lends itself to the text you did bring. Um, oh yeah. Yeah. You want to uh, you want to do a reading? Yeah, well, let me try. There's yeah. Yeah, yeah. Let me, <laughs> let me get to it. Here we go. I'm going to need to drink some water though. I I am really torn on like if I should do a bob approach of a read or like a uh Chris reading uh I dream Frank Stanford. I, I, yeah, yeah. I, <laughs> I dreamed a song like you can't whistle or whatever. <laughs> a knife. Sorry, a knife. I, too, have dreamed songs that you cannot whistle. It's just not possible. <laughs> All right. <clears throat> I'm going to probably land somewhere in between here. Your wickedness makes you, as it were, heavy as lead, and to rend downwards with great weight and pressure towards hell. And if God should let you go, you would immediately sink and swiftly descend and plunge into the bottomless gulf. And your healthy constitution, and your own care and prudence, and your best contrivance, and all your righteousness would have no more influence to uphold you and keep you out of hell than a spider's web would have to stop a falling rock. Were it not for the sovereign pleasure of God, the earth would not bear you one moment, for you are a burden to it. The creation groans with you. The creature is made subject to the bondage of your corruption, not willingly. The sun does not willingly shine upon you to give you light to serve sin and Satan. The earth does not willingly yield her increase to satisfy your lusts, nor is it willingly to stage for your wickedness to be acted upon. 
The air does not willingly serve you for breath to maintain the flame of your life in your vitals while you spend your life in the service of God's enemies. God's creatures are good and were made for men to serve God with and do not willingly subserve any other purpose so directly contrary to their nature and end. And the world would spew you out were it not for the sovereign hand of him who hath subjected in hope. There are black clouds of God's wrath now hanging directly over your heads, full of the dreadful storm and big with thunder. And were it not for the restraining hand of God, they would immediately burst forth upon you. The sovereign pleasure of God for the present stays his rough wind. Otherwise, it would come with fury, and your destruction would come like a whirlwind and be like the chaff of the summer threshing floor. Ouch. You know, I haven't... <laughs> I haven't read it since high school, and um, what I, I was like thinking. it better than I did in high school, actually. <laughs> I, Turns out uh, Jonathan Edwards, early eco-fascist. Here's, here's one more line I can't resist to read. It's a little bit farther down, but it's so good. The bow of God's wrath is bent and the arrow made ready on the string. And justice directs the bow to your heart and strains at the bow. And it is nothing but the mere pleasure of God and that of an angry God without any promise or obligation at all that keeps the arrow one moment from being made drunk with your blood. <laughs> okay, that's sick as hell. Oh, my God. It is, it is so good. <laughs> that is so metal. That is incredible. <laughs> so I, I, I have a lot of thoughts about it, but to, to, to jump straight on what you said about liking it more in high school... Um, Bob, did you study this in high school? I'm, I believe I, d I read this both in high school and like, like a freshman year college, like early American lit class. Okay. I think I've done it twice. And I liked it less in high school. I, I was very much, and still am into the idea of a loving God. That's why I and, didn't like it. It rubbed me the right. wrong way. Right. <laughs> but in the age of the Trump administration, a pandemic, endless war, terrorism, all the stuff like, yeah, you can be ended in a second. <laughs> it's just like, it hits a little differently. I don't know. I'm kind of into it now. <laughs> I had, um, I had kind of forgotten like what the deal was with this, like what, why this was so important. And I guess because it started the first great awakening in America or whatever, that's the like historical reason. But uh, when I looked it up, it's like he he delivered this at his congregation, and then there was like some other church down the road that they were just like so bad. The pastor was like, "Yo, you guys, you have to come to an encore, and like you got to <laughs> talk to these people. You got to hear this." <laughs> <laughs> well, we talk yeah. about the power of reading out loud on this podcast. So. Damn, yeah. Right. <laughs> um, I similarly had that thought where, yeah, just as you're reading this. Like, that is so far from the Christianity that I grew up with. Um, you know, like, I knew hell wasn't great, but I, it was not this, there was not an angry, vengeful God, um, which is probably why I was able to, like, be into it for so long. Like, you both said, like, I, I was taught a very loving God. So, yeah, this is, it's bizarre to me. Um, that was, I, I think, Chris, you, you nailed it by saying, like, metal God metal version of God, but also to think of that being um, 
you know, in the, the waters, in the blood of early American Christianity and early American identity, holy shit, that makes a lot of sense about um, yeah. how we still it's extreme, are. It's yeah. an extremely American poem or <laughs> sermon. Um, I, and uh, yeah, to be clear, Bob, Brendan and I studied this in English class. We studied this as oh, literature. In public like, school, yeah. In yeah. public school, yeah. Oh, not as like a, um, yeah, not as a, um, we studied this after reading, um, not The Crucible. What do we read? Uh, the Scarlet Letter. Scarlet Letter, yeah. We studied this in conjunction with The Scarlet Letter. Yeah. Okay, I see um, it. Uh, I, I was, yeah. It makes sense. Yeah. I, I was mm-hmm. I was looking up Cotton Mather because I was like, well, Cotton Mather has to have like some sick-ass sermon I could read as well. And I couldn't really find anything, but I forgot about like how crazy that guy's life was. Like he was a Puritan pastor, and uh, he helped discover like sort of, I think some sort of like early science that led to like vaccine kind of things. But he also like helped burn witches and stuff. I mean, obviously not. He just helped with the Salem witch trials as well. Like, man, this guy was a well-rounded resume. Uh, They break uh, sinners in the hands of an angry God. They like break it down into 10 points. And he kind of naturally breaks it down too in the way that he, he wrote it. Um, Or it was. So it'd make an excellent chat book. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. With (laughs) illustrations by like some, you know, uh, some local artist. Um, it's funny. I, I was like reading over the 10 points and I was like, these are all just the same point. And it's that, it's <laughs> that God will kill you. Like that, it, it's like this divine grace is the theme of the poem, you know, and like, or the, the sermon and that's it. There's not really a whole lot more after it besides you are bad and you were born bad. And the only reason you're not already in hell is because God is like, maybe you can go to heaven. <laughs> is an incredible thing to think about like like that there was a line there where um he mentions uh all of your good health and good constitution or whatever like won't matter or something which is just like yeah that that knowledge that um you can do everything right and it can just all be taken away I feel like that's something poets talk about frequently, you know? Okay. Um, the randomness <laughs> of life. <laughs> um, he, poets are famously obsessed with mortality, you know? Yeah, all the darkness. He does a pretty cool thing throughout the whole sermon where he he uses a lot of, um, like, nature. Often, like in that one, he talks about the spider web. He kind of talks about the spider web a couple different times. Um, talks about a whirlwind. He talks about... In other parts, he talks about like being like crushed by a wave and stuff. There's like a line that says, uh, "Hold on, I can find it." The God that holds you over the pit of hell, much in the same way as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire, abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. <laughs> and it's like, it's like, hey, you know how you torture insects? God is as mad as that thing. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I mean. Music, image, and metaphor is what makes up poems, and this this sermon has it in spades. Like, yeah, he does. Um, he does. Uh, kind of do that same thing you were talking about with uh with Job, with where God appears as a whirlwind, and uh, I think the Bible is a little underrated for just how vivid and florid the stuff in it is. Like, and how like how I think we were talking a little bit off mic before and like just how terrifying some of the parts of the Bible are um, in a really visceral way. 
And he captures that, you know, to his credit. Like, he read the Bible. Yeah. You know, know, just thinking about that, uh, the Bible and, like, trying to get to the good parts, you know, that that you're kind of talking about. Uh, Raymond Carver's editor should have taken a look at the Bible. He could have made some scratches, you know, really trim that thing down. I would kill for a Gordon Lish version of the Bible. (laughs) It's just so brutal. Jesus wept and he like crosses out like part of that, you know. Just says wept. Yeah, do we need the Jesus here? Um I mean, as you were saying that and to take you back a couple steps, that was I when you first said the the chapbook version of um of Edwards, uh that was my thought was like, all right, how much do I have to cut a part of this before I can submit it and say it's my own? You know, like not even a full erasure, just like yeah. Um, yeah. Fucking good. <laughs> you do an you could do an English to English translation. You just like you cut some parts Ooh, and then you just uh okay. Okay. uh change all the words and then bing bang boom you got a poem. <laughs> right, Bob, I mean, you the, already the really like... cynical part of me is just like what happens if I take out God? <laughs> hey, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Well, I would be uh, remiss not to make this point that I wrote down in my notes because I, I was, as soon as you guys asked me to do this, which I got to say, big fan, happy to be here on the podcast and listen every week. Um, but uh, I was like, I, I, we're just going to end up talking about religion and not like touch on horror at all. I'm glad we're kind of getting into it. But a thought that I had, and I would love to hear you guys' thought. Um, so I, Chris, I can't remember if Chloe said this to you in, in one of uh, the class you took or something, but... Um, horror as a loss of agency. That that yeah. idea, horror is a loss yeah, of she agency. She had a whole week on that. Yeah. And I think that that's the reason religious horror really works for me and hits for me is it's religion is a loss of agency. It's fundamental belief is surrendering of right. all power. And so I think that that sort of, I, I, I don't know, I think that there's something there in the fundamental horror of what's scary about religion and then some of the imagery that's tied to it. Yeah. I think you're spot on, especially with the, uh, especially with, with this piece, like, you know, there's like an old like trope with, with horror where it's like, you know, people say like, okay, well, I, I, I obviously wouldn't go into the haunted house. Like audience members say I wouldn't go into the haunted house or whatever. Um, but like when you think about that sort of idea from, like the character's perspective. It's like, well, we bought this house. We're going to go live in this house. And it uh, turns out to be haunted. And all this horrific stuff happens. Like, yeah, that's a loss of agency. Because, like, you know, to buy a house, you have to put down a down payment. You have to <laughs> sign all these mortgage documents. There's a whole legal rigmarole only to be met by ghosts or whatever. You know, like, that's 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 terrifying. Um, and uh, to reframe that as... Um. Yeah, like God can take you any time. Um, God, who's supposed to be benevolent and loving, or or you know, a, a creator God. Um. Yeah, that's kind of terrifying. So you use religion as that kind of trope, and that that's or or the creator God also created these demons and monsters that are, you know bothering you 
Let me let me piggyback because you're saying something I think is very similar to what I was thinking, and I had not heard that that phrase um, of horror being about loss of agency, and that makes a ton of sense to me. I really like that. And I mean, you talked about this like with poetry in general, kind of something we respond to as poets. Um, and I think like a very human thing to respond to is like uh, one fundamental loss or just lack of agency we have in life is like that we're gonna die. Right. Like that's just one thing that is completely out of our control. Um, Mm -hmm. But religion, especially in the context of that reading, um, like tells us who has that control. Like it's a loss of agency of like you're going to die. God's responsible for it. He knows when you're going to die. He knows where you're going to go. and He's going to punish the heck out of you um, because you are trash and you have no control over that. Yeah. (laughs) That sucks, and it's terrifying. And that's like, yeah, you can exercise demons, you can vanquish ghosts, you can put a stake through a vampire's heart. There is nothing you can do against God. <laughs> he he is the <sighs> ultimate big bad. <laughs> God is the final boss. <laughs> to to look at it conversely, the 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 supposed beautiful part of. Christianity or, or some other religions, but specifically Christianity, is that exactly what you're saying. God, like you have no power. God has all the power, but there's also the promise of like, like a of return of your agency. I could give you <laughs> eternal life. I can give you the ability to see all those you once loved, and and we can just hang out forever. You know, um, I, I I don't know. Uh, something to something to be said there. I really like the thought of God just being s- like so mad though, because it's not the God I believed in. I just I love the idea. Right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that is. Uh, I mean, there is, you know, something horrific at the heart of Christianity, which is that uh, the Old Testament God is explicitly a war god. He's a mm-hmm. con- conquering god, and. Um, who lays down this complex labyrinthine set of laws that everyone has to follow, but it's impossible to follow. And so to redeem the world, God sends his son to minister to the world and then be sacrificed in just the most horrific way possible. Like uh, he is nailed to a plank of wood and hung in the desert for three days. Something I learned in a, uh, theology class at Loyola was that um, the fact that it happens on Passover, I think I'm getting this right, uh, that the crucifixion happens on Passover. Like, so as Jesus is being whipped and beaten and um, nailed to the cross, uh, thousands and thousands of lambs are being slaughtered, like the next block over. So there's just like the bleeding and screaming of like a bunch of slaughtered lambs. And that whole area is just like covered in lamb's blood for a little while uh, for the sake of Passover. And I I think I'm getting that right. I probably am not. But um, that sacrifice was necessary to appease the angry God so that we could (laughs) all have eternal life. And that's the heart of Christianity. (laughs) Like, I don't know. I don't know where to go with that. I don't know what to do with that. I mean, you you were making a really good sales pitch for a little bit. <laughs> you, you had a little bit of on there. <laughs> well, was it the dying lambs that turned you off? 
Um, I mean, what comes to my mind as you talk about that, um, and I, other people have criticized this, and there's been like, I feel like good art um, about like the weirdness of Catholicism in particular, and like hanging crucifixes up everywhere, um, and, and just I can objectively think about like how horrifying of an image this is of this man dying, being hung to a planks of wood. Um, but it really was just like such a common image. It was in every classroom in my elementary school that like doesn't phase me the slightest bit. Yeah. It doesn't register. Yeah. Which is weird. You have to actually sit down and think about it. Right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but you just, you see it all the time. Yeah. yeah. All right. Let's pivot to an MBA question. <laughs> so. Oh, before we do, I, I, the, the last little bit in your, uh, in your little primer you sent to me was about like why you think it's more interesting to talk about demons and hell and stuff versus heaven. Oh yeah. 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 You want to, you want to hit us with that question? What do you say? Do you want to hit us with that question? You just want me to talk yeah, about sure, it? Sure. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I, we were kind of getting into it. So I, so I skipped over it a little bit, but um, I just have, I had like, it was the one thought that I was like, Oh, this, this is a good thought. So, okay, cool. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, we're not afraid to get meta on this podcast. Uh, I will read the question from my notes, uh, and this is the reason I skipped it because it was it was like it 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 it, it um, touched on a lot of stuff we just now touched on. But if you have a thought, let's do it. I'm going to tee you up. Uh, I, I don't know who's pitching for the Dodgers right now, but it's coming right down the middle. Um, a lot of religious thinking is an obsession with mortality, something poets never think about. Uh, fear of mortality produces some hopeful thinking. Heaven means eternal reward, reuniting with loved ones, and peace. But the inverse, hell, is a series of demons and monsters and torture and punishment. I'll open it up to either of you. Why is it so much more fun to write about hell and monsters and demons than it is to write about heaven? All right, you ready? Yeah, let's do it. It's because a threat is more interesting than a promise. Oh, okay. As soon as I saw that question, I was like, that's why. Because the promise of heaven is, it's such a passive thing. I mean, because it's all about what you you can't do and what you should believe in order to go to this place. But hell is the threat of if you do the wrong thing or if you don't believe the right way, you go to this place. And I think that it's like heaven is an epilogue that you would skip in a novel, but hell is all of the plot. It's all of the conflict and, and none of the resolve. So it's so much more in- interesting to think about because it's oh, just, yeah. it's just at, like, it's just like, like an action movie, just like plot point, plot point, plot point, action, 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 you know, and you never have to like, really, you don't get any relief from it. And I think that that's <laughs> an interesting thought. Sure. So like to use my haunted house analogy, like, if you do all the right things, you save up for a down payment and you, you sign all the papers and you buy a house and then you just live there, it's fine. But if you exactly. do all the right things and then you move into a haunted house and you start getting paranormal activity, it's, that's a movie. Yeah. It, it's, that, yeah. yeah, it's exactly, exactly that. Yeah. Uh, I like that. Sorry, Bob. I was really proud of that. So I, I wanted to answer it. No, that was, no, that was solid. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I have, I have complex feelings about that, um, that I'm not sure if I can unpack here, um, because I, I think that's a really good approach to it. The way that that troubles me, um, is that, uh, Brendan, you might not be as, as aware of this, but, um, I, I have an obsession with, um, utopian literature, 
um, and utopianism in general. And the like original utopia books or literature that predates the text utopia is all like heaven, right? Like that it's all the religious writing and stuff about heaven. So like I have this immediate like metaphor that comes up of like one of the questions within utopian academia, whatever is, I don't want to get into the <laughs> nitty gritty, um, but is, you know, this idea of in the past, however many years, dystopian literature is this like big sale thing. I don't like the idea that the metaphor you just said actually works with what I'm just saying, um, because I have like very <laughs> concrete reasons of like why I think like dystopian literature is possible and how it like reflects really poorly on us um, and our like inability to imagine uh, better futures. Um, but, you know, I'm completely taking us down a the wrong alley here. <laughs> no, I think that's valid, man. Yeah. Well, I, I, but I mean, because I, 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 I agree, I don't that... want to read about heaven. Yeah, that's, I mean, Bob, I got bad news. That's why the utopian literature dropped off. Like, because people are way more interested in like what could be not, not what is like promised, you know, like, whoa, how bad could it get, you know? Man, have and, you... and Bob, I've 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 read a draft of your manuscript and it's very good, but yeah, like none of those groups exist anymore. <laughs> like... <laughs> That's why they're good. And I'm like, Brennan, have you read the Dispossessed? Am I gonna have to send you a novel? Yeah, um... send me this too. Please do. Yeah, no, <laughs> I, I do tend towards uh, cynicism and darkness, so I I should read some Utopian. I mean, that's fair. Um, I'm also thinking, though, as a, as you say this, um, in Bill and Ted Two, uh, the bogus Ooh. journey. They go to heaven, and it's actually an incredible scene. <laughs> it's one of my favorite. It's probably my favorite depiction of heaven in all of <laughs> cinema history. Mine's all dogs go to heaven, but this is a close second. So, <laughs> Bob, do you know that you were talking to like two huge Bill and Ted fans? I did not know that. <laughs> oh yeah, oh yeah, man. Our uh, AIM screen names were. Uh, for a while, were uh, Darth Ted and Luke Bill from that uh, scene where they're in in the first movie where they are uh, they're in the night dressed as knights and they're fighting with swords and they're like <laughs> I'm Darth Ted and I'm Luke Bill and you're not my father and then they he like knocks him down the set of stairs. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Shout out to AOL Instant Messenger. <laughs> <laughs> okay, now we can pivot. We've now, reached the pivot. Now, now's the pivot. Now, now we've reached the pivot. We've broken down. We started talking about AOL, so it's 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 the pivot <laughs> point. So I didn't forward this question to either of you uh, before him. It's uh, admittedly a bit of a weird one, and I have a little uh, sermon to do. But um, which NBA player, in your mind, is the most like Job from the Bible? <laughs> <laughs> the guy God cursed the most. So my answer and I'm sorry to pick the best one right off the bat, but my answer is Tracy McGrady. <laughs> if he had just stayed in Toronto, that pairing with Vince Carter could have been legendary. But he wanted to get out of his cousin's shadow, so that's understandable. So he went to Orlando to play with Grant Hill, who at the time was like a top five player. And they had the rookie of the year that year with Mike Miller. And then Grant Hill's ankles promptly turned to the same kind of dust that Job used to cover himself to... Uh, uh, heal his boils um, and Grant Hill misses basically four seasons while McGrady has to single-handedly drag that team around and then he goes to the Rockets to play with Yao Ming 
a team that really should have won a championship. But when Grady starts getting injured, Yao starts getting injured, and they barely play games together. He's almost unplayable by age 30, and then he has to do a year in hell with the Knicks, a year in purgatory with the Pistons, and then he reaches basketball heaven on the 2013 Spurs. But like Moses looking at the promised land but never getting there, that Spurs team loses the finals, McGrady retires, then the Spurs win the finals next year. <laughs> so it really feels like God was just messing with Tracy McGrady. <laughs> I am woefully unprepared for this, unprepared for this question. Um, my, Maybe a Titans player if you wanted. Yeah. Oh, no, that the, the Titans have never had success in that sense. So I can't, you know, they have never had that ultimate success. Well, my my initial instinct is to say like, and this is just my limited knowledge, I guess, would be someone like, like Derrick Rose or something in the sense of like, has all this capability and like everything going in the world and then it's taken away, but like, doesn't curse the, doesn't curse the game, doesn't turn his back, like still tries, still tries to be faithful and just never gets a reward or payoff. That's my instinct. I'm sure there's a better example than Derrick Rose, but like some player who like, despite it all, never gave up on basketball, but basketball never gave him what he wanted, you know? <laughs> yeah, no, that's a fair, I don't, that's a fair I, I don't like the happy ending of Job. I ignore it altogether. He didn't get his sons back. Like, he's a, he was, like, actually, like, just in, like, his final death moment, and he imagined that he got his kids back. But, like... <laughs> <laughs> right, right. <laughs> I, I think you're on the right path there. It is... It, it, it feels like it has to be someone um, who got hurt... Um, too soon, who kept trying. Um, I mean, T-Max teammate Grant Hill, I think very much fits in with that. Penny Hardaway was the first ones that come to my mind. Oh, yeah, Penny Hardaway's a good one. So great. Um, So many 6'7 to 6'8 dudes from the 90s. (laughs) Um, I'm trying to think, too, of like, uh, I, I mean, I feel like, None of our friends like him, but like Patrick Ewing, um, you know, where he just like had this good career, did his thing. Yeah. The, the closest the Knicks ever got to winning was when he got hurt. Um, you know, like. Ooh. Yeah. And he, he just had the bad luck of playing with them, playing. Right. At the same time as MJ, you yep. know. Yeah. Or, uh, or uh, also dislikable guy, Carl Malone. <laughs> um, and maybe both him and Stockton. Yeah. But, you know, Malone had the thing of going to the Lakers and, you know, expecting it's just going to happen. And they melted down and he got hurt in the conference finals wasn't it that's right yeah it was wonderful to watch (laughs) (laughs) not the injury but the lakers losing (laughs) oh carl malone's a pedophile so it's it's fine to say anything about him yeah (laughs) well that's where we're ending the podcast (laughs) (laughs) we're ending on carl malone's a pedophile well i was gonna say and god's got him in his hands just like this just like, oh, you finally get to play with Kobe, but guess what? Kobe's a rapist, and you finally get to play with Shaq, but guess what? Shaq doesn't care anymore. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> okay, this this has been an episode. <laughs> our music producer is our guest this week. And our art is done by A.M. Strickland. We will talk to you guys next week.
I was gonna say I did I did go and read some I did read that weird poem that you said. Which one? The the like fucking god poem. Yeah. <laughs> I like I was like, no way it's gonna be that weird. And then I read I'm like, holy shit, this is really weird. It's it's weird. It's it's really weird. But then I, I went and read some William Blake too. I did my research, guys. Don't worry. Uh, and I, one of these poems, oh, it's called uh, the. It's like a two-parter, but the first one's called like "Little Boy Lost," and then the second mm-hmm. one's called "Little Little Boy Found." I didn't even read "Little Boy Found." Why would I need that? "Little Boy Lost" is perfect. <laughs> it's so yeah. good. William Blake is really interesting. He he plays with like religious duality. I think in a really interesting way. Um, and of course, like the all his poems are published on like wood carvings with illustrations, which I think is really cool. I just um, he just doesn't quite do it for me, but I think like all the stuff he does is cool. Is that the tiger he also, guy? Like Loki yeah. thought he was like a prophet and like saw visions and shit. 